Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a weary land, a weary land. Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a weary land, a weary land. Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. I would not be a sinner. I'll tell you the reason why. I'm afraid my Lord might call my name, and I wouldn't be ready to die. Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a weary land, a weary land. Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. I would not be a backslider. of the hour, and he is Dr. Keith Augustus Burton, and he is married to one woman, Hyacinth Henry of Kingston, Jamaica, and they, he is their 
proud um, parents of uh, two, uh, Shireen, a project manager at uh, the Adventist Health System, and um, Kaleem, a student of Oakwood University. He presently, he serves as the director um, of the recently established Center for Adventist Muslim Relations at Oakwood University, where he teaches undergraduate and graduate classes in the School of Religion. Additionally, he has served as in several Doctor of Ministry projects and was the facilitator of the The, uh, the, 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 the Timas Club. Is that right? It? Timotheus Club at the Oakwood University campus. Now he is an ordained minister and a graduate from Oakwood and also a graduate uh, from uh, the Garnet Evangelical Theological Seminary where he received his master uh, degree in uh, theology and Northwestern University where he earned his Doctor of Philosophy in New Testament. I want you to understand that we have a man that is well qualified to speak to us today. He has lectured in various continents uh, in Europe, North America, uh, Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, and he is also featured in many television and radio programs. Recently, he hosted the radio program Life Heritage Moments uh, that was broadcast in seven stations right across 11 states. And so the man who we have here, uh, in terms of his academical preparation, that is one thing. But I want you to know that he is a servant of God. I want you to know that he is a man of, man of God and he is well qualified to speak to us today, not on his own merits, but on the merits of the Holy Spirit. And so it gives me great joy to welcome uh, this man that will plant a seed, a seed of knowledge that we pray that will germinate through the power of the Holy Spirit and will help us on our Christian journey. At this time, I welcome you to our very So after uh, the, the song by our choir, the next voice that you will hear is that of Dr. Keith Burton.
here on this afternoon. You see me talking to myself. Don't for a second think I'm crazy. Because sometimes you need to speak a word to yourself. With so many naysayers and haters around, sometimes the only person that's going to encourage you is you. Thank you, choir, for that reminder. That God's Spirit is in us. And when the Spirit of God is in us, we can always be encouraged. It is indeed a pleasure to share with you today at Abundant Life. Many years ago, Dr. Rock told me he's going to have me down. But I'm glad we're here eventually. God indeed is a good God. And even as I stand before you, want to express thanks to your pastor. Did the rapture just take place? <laughs> Good friend of mine, Pastor Madden. I just use one word to describe him. Cool. He's Mr. Cool and God has planted in his heart a mind for ministry and so I pray that you will work with him as he helps you to achieve your vision because we understand as pastors that when we come into church situations that you are not our laboratories I tell my students that all the time you don't go into a church to try something out when you go into a new congregation, God has gifted you some skills to get them to that next level. But the vision should always be a shared vision, a vision that survives even when the pastor moves on. And so abundant life, understand what your vision is in Jesus Christ. And every vision that you shape for yourself, every mission statement that you craft, it is one that should be anchored into the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28. It is one that should be anchored in the statement that Jesus makes in John chapter 13 verses 34 and 35 when he says, By this shall all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. If you're not loving, if you're not telling people about our Savior Jesus Christ that he is soon to come, you are not fulfilling the mission of the gospel. But abandon life this day. Speak a word to yourself. Let the Holy Spirit know that you are serious about living out who you are. Bringing greetings this morning from Oakwood University, where Dr. Leslie Ann Pollard is president. Where over 2,000 students assemble at a place where they enter to learn and depart to serve. 
bringing greetings also from the Oakwood University Campus Church, where Dr. Carlton Bird is senior pastor. Over 3,000 people gather weekly to sing praises to the name of our almighty God. At Oakwood University for the past year and a half or so, I've been serving as the head of the Center for Adventist Muslim Relations. I was trying to find a way to squeeze the theme in to the sessions I have with you, but we can only mention what we do in passing. The Seventh Adventist Church for about 20 years has been involved with Adventist Muslim relations. And we're basically about building bridges with our Muslim brothers and sisters. All too often, we have misunderstandings fed to us through the media. And they have misunderstandings fed to them. But we want them to know that we recognize them as sons and daughters of Abraham. We want them to know that the image of Christianity that they've received uh, through the Crusades and uh, through the various wars that have been wrought against some of their nations in recent years uh, is not what the gospel of Christ is all about. And so at the Center for Adventist Muslim Relations at Oakwood University, we are governed by three core principles. The first is learning. We don't have all the answers. And so we talk to our Muslim brothers and sisters and ask them, tell us something about yourself. We want to be always in a mode to listen because only when you listen can you learn. Number, sec number two, sorry. Our second core principle is loving. This Thursday, I've invited Muslim leaders in the community to sit down with the leaders of Oakwood University where we will eat lunch together and talk about common themes and how we can help each other. At the end of this month, I go to Ghana, West Africa with the North Ghana Mission, which is situated in an area that is 85% Muslim. The North Ghana Mission is starting some shea butter factories where they intentionally will employ 35% of the workforce as Muslims. And they will sit side by side with our Adventist brothers and sisters and talk about some of the things that we hold in common. One of which, if you did not know, is Al-Issa Al-Masih, which is the name that the Quran gives to Jesus. Or the one who was born of a virgin, according to the Quran. The only person who got endowed with the Holy Spirit. The one who healed the sick and raised the dead. Yes, Muslims believe that too. The one who sits at the right hand of God and the one who is coming again. The one who the Quran refers to as the Hru Allah, the Spirit of God. The Nur Allah, the Light of God. And the Kalim Atallah, the Word of God. And so at the Center for Adventist Muslim Relations, we love our brothers and sisters as we work together with them and ask them to take another look at the one whom they call prophet but the one whom we know as Lord. And finally, number three, our third principle is sharing. Whenever they have a question about Christianity or Christ, we're there to answer them. 
And I can tell you story after story about the great things that God is doing with our Muslim brothers and sisters. About our Muslim brothers and sisters in the heart of the Muslim world who are receiving visions and dreams about Al-Issa Al-Masih and who have accepted him as their Savior and Lord. So let's continue to pray for the work of not only Oka University Center for Adventist Muslim Relations, but also for the center that's housed at the General Conference, the center that's housed in the North American Division, and the many other centers that the church has, so that we can be the ones to show and share the love of Christ with our Muslim brothers and sisters. At this time, I'm going to ask if you can turn in your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 5. Because I know even as we've prayed, we've come to listen to the word that the Lord has for us. Revelation chapter 5. Those who are listening on the radio and those who are looking in over the internet, I pray that you may join us as we read uh, this text. Revelation uh, chapter 5. And now I'm going to read five verses in your hearing. And here the word of God says, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with the seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel. Can someone say strong angel? I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, John said, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. The King James says, Weep not. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals. Uh, for the next few moments, we will meditate on the sermon entitled Redemption Song, The Challenge of Change in the Age of Obama. Let us pray. Father God, we, your children, open our hearts to you once more, looking to you for encouragement, looking to you for a word. Lord, you know the man who stands behind the sacred desk. You know his trials and you know his triumphs. This day, Lord, Transform him into your megaphone. And may your words and your words alone be heard through him. And Lord God, when he has done that which you have asked him to do, and he makes the call, we pray, Lord, that your sheep 
will hear your voice and will respond. To this end, we do pray as we give these words to you in the precious name of Jesus. Let the saints of God together say, Amen and Amen. On July 4, 1776, members of the Continental Congress penned the document known as the Declaration of Independence, the second paragraph of which reads, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created equal, that they were endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In August 17, 76, an English publication known as Gentleman's Magazine had as its cover article a piece entitled Self-Evident to Whom? For you see, while members of the Continental Congress penned the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, a significant percentage of the population were still shackled in chains. Others were still lamenting the loss of their land from those who came from Europe seeking religious freedom, but instead stealing their inheritance. Why they said all men were created equal. Women in this nation of all ethnicities did not even have the right to vote. Self-evident, the article asked, to whom? But nonetheless, even though this was not a truism when it was penned, it was an ideal to which this nation has strived even as those from other nations were second-class citizens in these United States of America. The Statue of Liberty still stood in her stayed position from Ellis Island with a beckoning call, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. That declaration was to be a symbol of aspiration rather than a symbol of reality, but yet uh, people used it as the fuel for their causes. It was indeed Abraham Lincoln who looked at these words and penned the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. It was these words that inspired Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Staden to uh, lead uh, the movement for women to vote. It was these words that encouraged Dr. Martin Luther King to stand in the nation's capital 
and vocalize his dream that one day he will live in a nation when the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will not be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. This was the bedrock of the dream. But those of us who live in the United States of America know that change takes time. And for a long time, uh, the bastion of imperialism in this nation seemed impregnable to change. I'm talking about the house located at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. This truly was the White House as those from European dreams, genes said that no other would occupy these premises. Oh, it's not that others did not try. Uh, we see Shirley Chisholm and Jesse Jackson and Alan Keyes and Al Sharpton and others were trying to make it to the highest seat in the land, but somehow it seemed so elusive. And then came 2008. Change was in the air. Now the anticipated change seemed to be a change that would be brought about by gender. You see, Sister Hillary Clinton was the heir apparent to the White House. Everybody just knew that she was a show-in. She had already purchased her inaugural gown, had written her guest list. She knew there was going to be change, but she figured it would be a gender change. Then all of a sudden, a man with a strange name entered the political scene. The son of a Kansan and a Kenyan who bore the name Barack Hussein Obama. When he spoke of the Democratic National Convention in 2004, people thought that he was just a temporary fascination. They felt that as soon as all of that touchy-feeling stuff wore off, that folk were going to forget about him, but he was silently building his campaign. And we know the story. In 2008, when the votes were counted, history was made in the United States of America. And the son of an African would occupy the White House. For those who follow politics, you would know that the first four years were tough ones. All of a sudden, we saw a level of disrespect that has not been seen for the office of presidency since the founding of these here United States. All of a sudden, the spirit of compromise was defeated by the party of no. And even as we faced the 2012 elections, and we looked 
at the various polls on racial attitudes in the United States of America. We found that incipient racism was stronger four years after than it was when he became president. Mitt Romney had no problem standing in front of racist crowds, playing the race cards, saying that he doesn't have to question where he was born. But yet, even after the most racialized election in the history of America, Barack Obama, Barack Hussein Obama, I don't know who told Chuck Schumer to say Barack H. Obama, but his middle name is Hussein. Barack Hussein Obama is still the 43rd president of the United States of America. Let me say this full disclaimer this afternoon. I am nonpartisan. I am an independent. But however, when I saw that Obama had thrown his hat into the pool, I started rooting for him from get-go. I can't say I was rooting for Brother Sharpton. I can't say I was rooting for Brother Jackson, but for some reason, I said, this is a man who seems to have a chance. I wanted success. You see, I felt that success for him would make a strong statement, not only for African Americans in this nation, but for Africans in the diaspora. You see, there is a common struggle that resulted from our exposure to slavery and imperialistic colonization. And success in one area is celebrated by those of the diaspora in all areas. I wanted success. Somehow it felt that, not fully but partially, the, the blood that was shed in the fight for liberation would not have been shed in vain if he succeeded somehow. Those who suffered at the other end of those fire hoses and the teeth of the police dogs in Birmingham and Montgomery would not have suffered in vain. Those who were beaten as they tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama would not have been beaten in vain. Those who were lynched while minding their own business would not have been lynched in vain. I wanted to see change in this nation. Change has come. But again, when we think about Trayvon, when we think about the other, reminders that we're not there yet. I have to ask myself, is this really change that we can believe in? Yes, we have an articulate visionary in the White House. But is he the change agent 
that the world needs. When he spoke at Cairo University, many Muslims looked at him as the Mahdi of Islamic prophecy. Is he the one that would bring peace to the world, they asked, as they sat bedazzled by his eloquent words. When he spoke in Berlin, over 100,000 Europeans came to see the man who they felt could bring peace to the world, could initiate this new world order. People are looking to him for change, and many Christians uncritically look at him as the one who God has appointed for this time. But I'm here to let you know, my brothers and sisters, that in our desperation, we must be careful. Barack Obama may be the president, but he is not the Messiah. Oh, after these four years, there's one thing I can guarantee for sure. Every person in this room will still be looking for change in America. As I thought about a biblical passage that speaks to the reality of our situation, the Spirit led me to Revelation chapter 5. And here we see a testament written by a faithful servant of God who too was looking for change. In fact, as he sat in solitary confinement on the Isle of Patmos, and he penned the words that the angels shared with him. He was seeking a better system. Don't think that John was on Patmos for a vacation. He was in prison there because he was an enemy of the state. In an empire where there was only one king, Caesar. He dared to say that Jesus the Christ was the king of kings. When there was only one kingdom, he dared to speak about the kingdom from heaven. When there was only one Lord that was Caesar again, the Pontifex Maximus, he dared to speak of the Lord of Lords who died for our sins. He was on Patmos as a political prisoner, one who was seeking change in the system. Some may feel that he may not have been imprisoned if his were a democratic system. Remember, our last president, George W. Bush, said that democracy is God's gift to humanity. But I have to remind Brother Bush uh, that democracy may have some benefits, uh, but we have yet to see democracy work. Uh, oh, we claim to live in a democracy, but if we really lived in a democracy, then Sheldon Addison would not be shelling out millions of dollars to try to win an election. This is not a democracy. This is a plutocracy. Even Barack Obama had to understand that his grassroots movement alone could not do it. He had to look for some millionaires with deep pockets. This is not a democracy. 
And even if we had a pure democracy, talking about democracies, we, we claim that our only friend in the Middle East is, is the only democracy, Israel. Somebody tell me this, and I'm talking as one with Jewish blood in my veins from my father and my mother's side, but tell me something. If Israel were a true democracy, why is it, and many of you probably haven't even thought about this yet, why is it that Abbas had to go to the United Nations and petition for Palestinian statehood. You have millions of people living in that region, in occupied territories, who do not have a vote. That's why they have to request statehood. If Israel were a true democracy, let the Arabs vote. But the United States claims to support them as the only democracy. Why? Because we still don't understand what a democracy is. And even if we had a true democracy, democracies can't stop famine. Democracies can't, can't stop earthquakes or tornadoes or any type of disease. Democracies are limited. We need real change in our system. Are you with me this afternoon? So John is looking for change. And God gives him the vision of a throne room. Chapter 4 lays out the glory of this throne room. But in chapter 5, the camera focuses in on the one who sits on the throne. And the Bible says that the one who sat on the throne has a scroll in his hand. And the scroll has writing on the inside and on the outside. And this scroll is sealed with how many seals? With seven seals. Most scrolls in antiquity were sealed with one Maybe two seals. But the fact that this scroll is sealed with seven seals makes us know that this is an important scroll. One may ask what is contained in that scroll. Well, based upon a close reading of Revelation, it would appear that this scroll, the Greek, the Biblios, the book, this scroll is the same one that John sees in Revelation chapter 20, the scroll that he compares with the scrolls or the book that he compares with the books. The books he sees in Revelation chapter 20, books in the plural, are books of judgment, but the book that he sees is the book of life. This book I propose, this scroll in the hand of God, is the scroll that contains the names of the redeemed, and until it is opened, then the cannot be called up yonder. And so the one who sits in the throne has a scroll sealed with seven seals. But until that scroll is open, the names of the redeemed cannot be called out and change cannot come to this world. The kingdom of God cannot be ushered in. 
So knowing the import of this grow, the Bible says, verse 2 of chapter 5, that a strong angel proclaimed with a loud voice, who is worthy to open this scroll? Now notice the text emphasizes that the angel is strong. You see, this did not have to do with military might or any type of brute force. It's not that there was no one who was strong enough to pry the scrolls apart. Military strength was not going to do it. The type of worthiness was a completely different one that was needed to open these scrolls. And the Bible says in verse 3 that even as the cry went out and the people waited for someone to raise a hand and say, I will do it, the Bible says no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. No one in heaven, not even Enoch, who walked with God and was no more because God took him. Not even Moses, who died before entering the promised land, but according to Jude, God had a special resurrection for him and took him out to glory. Not even Elijah, who was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind and chariots of fire. No one in heaven. But surely there's somebody on earth. But the Bible says no one on earth. Not Benedict the 16th who was about to retire. The one who calls himself the vicarious day, the representative of God. Hmm? Uh, not the orchestrators of the new world order. Not Nelson Mandela and Jimmy Carter and, 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 and Bill Clinton and other uh, among those who call themselves the global elders. Not even Ban Ki-moon, the secretary general of the United Nations, no one on earth. Well, maybe John thought they could have a special resurrection. Maybe there's somebody under the earth who could open the scroll. But not even Paul, who penned most of the books in the New Testament. Not even Peter, who was given the keys to the kingdom. Not Mother Teresa, the one who gave of her life to help the poorest of the poor in the slums of Calcutta. Not even Ellen G. White, saints of God, nobody under the earth. Oh, some of us may think they are worthy as they sit in their corner petitioning for them, saying, yes, we can. Uh, but the response comes from heaven, no, they can't. Why? Because our righteousness are like filthy rags, and all have sinned and come short of God's glory. And the worthiness to open these scrolls demands one who is perfect. So the cry goes out, who is worthy? 
as John waited for somebody to volunteer and realized that nobody was able to do so. The Bible records his feelings in verse 4 of chapter 5 in Revelation. He said, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Not even John, who was having the vision, could say to the angel, can I see if my name's written there? In this pregnant moment, it seems as if the whole world is trapped. John is crying because it seems as if Satan is the victor. Oh, Satan's been trying a long time to make it seem as if we can get peace on this earth through political systems. He gives us false hope all the time. Having people run, declare, and change, we can believe in. But I'm here to let you know that he's done it before. Yes, he has. Many years ago in Egypt, he raised up a king called Amenhotep, who told the people we will no longer worship many gods. We will worship just one god. He heralded change we can believe in. Or oh, we remember the great African king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who when God had humbled him, said to his people, I will no longer bow down to the Babylonian gods, but I will serve the God of heaven and earth. Change, he says, we can believe in. And then there was the Emperor Constantine, a worshiper of Mithra, who prayed to the Christian God to help in a certain battle. And when he got the victory, he said, now the Roman Empire will be Christian, declaring change we can believe in. Or Abraham Lincoln, when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, bringing in an era of reconstruction, where Many blacks were elected to political positions in the United States of America more than has been since that time. And he declared that he's bringing about change we can believe in. And then I remember the former Odisha when Joshua Nkoma and Robert Mugabe with their ZANU and ZAPU organizations fought side by side to overturn the oppressive regime of Ian Smith. All of these herald in change we can believe in. But history gives us the total picture. All of these heralded changed, but after a while we see nothing changed. You see, after Akhenaten came Footmos who oppressed the Israelites and forced them to make bricks without straw. After Nebuchadnezzar came Belshazzar, who so disrespected God that he drank alcohol out of the temple vessels. After Constantine came Martin V and Henry the Navigator initiating the slave trade and colonialism. 
after Abraham Lincoln came Plessy versus Ferguson that legalized apartheid in the United States of America. After Mugabe and Nkomo overthrew Rhodesia, we see Mugabe seemingly possessed by demons as he has put Zimbabwe on a course to bankruptcy. Earthly systems proclaiming change, but after a while being disappointed in the results. No wonder John wept. And I weep too. I weep when I think about the depraved condition of our world. I weep when I consider the fact that even though I live in Huntsville, Alabama, no, no, Harvest, Alabama, I know you've never heard of that place. I still go home every night and activate my security code so I can feel a little bit safe. I'm tired of this old world. Tired of paying bills to ADT. Tired of dreading any time April 15 comes around because I gotta give the IRS their piece of flesh while Mitt Romney moves his money. Mm. Tired of hearing about corruption in the police force. Tired of paying in the PPOs. Tired of the bills that don't seem to end. Tired of the fact that even when I finish paying my mortgage, if I don't pay my taxes, the government's going to own my house. Tired. of seeing victims of child abuse, tired of the AIDS epidemic, tired. We need a deliverer, saints of God, who is not subject to corruption, one who keeps his word, one who will not be succeeded by evil heirs, one whose throne is forever, and the cry goes out, who is worthy? We need a revolution, saints of God. We need change we can believe in, but who is worthy? So as John wept, the Bible says, verse 4, one of the elders came to him, put his arm around his shoulder, and said, weep not. Just two words, but powerful words. John, sometimes you need to encourage yourself. <laughs> Weep not. Don't cry. Saints of God, today I don't know your pain. But if these words are for you, receive them. You may be mourning the, the loss of a loved one, but the Bible says weep not. <laughs> you may be going for a tough marriage, but the word to you today is weep not. 
You may be having problems on the job and don't even know if you have one on Monday morning, but the word today is weep not. How can I say this with confidence? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed. And when the lion has prevailed, there's no need for any of us to be afraid because all of our enemies, all of the haters will have to scatter. Weep not. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to loose the seals and to open the scroll. Somebody needs to say amen. Oh, that lion. He has conquered the serpent has already handed him the notice of eviction. Why do you think Satan's acting so crazy? He's, he's messing up the house because he knows he has to leave. Mm. But he is a king without a kingdom. Been given that notice of eviction and guess what? The last thing Jesus did before he was resurrected, he grabbed the keys from the hands of Satan and said, you got something that belonged to me. I got the keys to the kingdom. No need to cry, my brothers and sisters, because the lion of the tribe of Judah will break every chain and will give us that victory again and again. So verse 6 of chapter 5, John says, even as he wiped the tears from his eyes, he looked, and what a sight he saw. Remember, he heard that the one who had prevailed was the lion of the tribe of Judah. But what we have here in the book of Revelation is a device that we call hearing and seeing. So in chapter 1, John hears something, but when he looks, he sees something else. It relates to Jesus. In chapter 7, John hears the number of the sealed, 144,000, but when he looks, he sees a great multitude. And here in chapter 5, he hears the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who prevails, the conquering king. But when he looks, the Bible says, he sees a lamb as though it has been slain. Now some people may be a little disturbed with the imagery here. Because we want that lion. We want that king of the jungle to scare those or those who've been hurting us. But before Christ manifests himself as lion, he must manifest himself as lamb. Because this lamb who is slain is the same lamb who was wounded for our transgressions, bruised, for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace is upon him, and with his stripes, hallelujah, we are healed. 
So John sees the Lamb. And I'm sure a scene from early on in Jesus' ministry must have come to him when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Because only one who can take away the sins can open the scroll. So in verse 7 we read, Jesus went to the one who had the scroll in his hand and he took it. Then ask for permission. He took it. Why? Because he is worthy. And the father knew that when the son came to take the scroll, that he'd paid the price with his very blood. And at that moment, when he took the scroll, the text says, that all heaven broke out into rapturous applause. When we look at verse 8, the Bible says that when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb and took out their bass guitar, took out their lead guitar, took out their Hammond organ, and they began to sing a song that angels cannot sing, the song of redemption, the song of how I got over the song of I once was lost but now I'm found the song of amazing grace they began to sing redemption song they began to sing the song of victory somebody needs to say amen so they sang the song as we bring this to a close and even as my vision is pulled to that heavenly scene, my mind once more comes back to reality. It is still 2013, and Barack Hussein Obama is still president. Oh, yes, we may have a reason for smiling, but again, a word of caution from the word of the Lord, put not your trust in princes, put not your trust in princes. I remember during the first election cycle, shortly after Hillary Clinton dug up that picture of Barack Obama in Kenya when he had this turban on and a different African clothes, trying to make it seem like he's different than we are. And I remember people began to, to really emphasize the Hussein in his name because, you see, it wasn't too, uh, too long before this that, that, that the United States had just um, seen over the execution of Saddam Hussein. And people started talking about his name, and, 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 and I got to looking at, at, at his name, and, and, and I, I, I felt that, that somehow there was, there was something prophetic about the name that his parents gave to him. His first name, Barak, is an Arabic name, also in the Hebrew, Barak. 
basically means the blessed one. Mm -hmm. The blessed one. His second name, Hussein, another Arabic name, it, it, it means the handsome one. Well, I heard some ladies say amen. <laughs> in fact, in the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, uh, the name Hussein is only reserved for royalty. Mm -hmm. So he's the blessed one and, and, and the handsome one, the, uh, the handsome prince, if you please. But then his third name, Obama, is not Arabic as some people believe, but it's his tribal name from Kenya. It is a Luo name. And Obama literally means the crooked one, the imperfect one, the one who is bent. Stay with me now. Barack Hussein Obama may be blessed, may be handsome, may even be royalty, but he is imperfect. He may bring change, but his best will not be good enough. There'll be broken promises. There'll be thwarted plans. There'll be policies that we cannot agree with as Christian people. Many people will be disappointed by this blessed and handsome one. Why? Because he's imperfect. He's sin and comes short of the glory of God. And I profess today, I do declare that if we want to see change, we need one mm -hmm. who is not only blessed who is not only royalty, but is perfect. And I declare that that change can only come from the only person who fits this job description, and his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Let me tell you, my brothers and sisters, if you hold on just a little while longer, you will see this one make an appearance because my barber tells me that a revolution's coming. My barber tells me that he that will come shall come and will not tarry. And when he comes... Let me tell you something. He is coming with lion-like bodacity. You see, the first time he came as a sacrifice. But when he comes again, he'll return as a judge. When he came before, he came as a helpless babe. When he returns, he'll return as a conquering king. The first time, he came as a victim. But when he returns, he'll come as a victor. The first time, he came as a citizen. But when he returns, he'll return as the king of kings. The first time, he came as a suffering servant. But when he returns, he'll return as the Lord of lords. The first time, he came as a lamb to the slaughter. But when he returns, he'll return as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Somebody needs to say amen.
And when he returns, saints of God, he returns with healing in his wings. He returns with gifts that he will dole out liberally. He returns to make a permanent change on this earth. But I'm here to tell you today, as we bring this to a close, that even though we await that eternal change, our God is also ready, willing, and prepared to allow you to experience change right now. I'm here to let you know Although the political system may not have all the answers to your issues, I know somebody who does. Not one who is subject to death, subject to corruption, but the one whose throne is forever and ever. The one who has promised not to withhold any good thing from those who ask. And so this day, as the saints of God are praying, there's somebody who needs to experience change in their life. Like me, they're tired of the corruption that surrounds us, the decadence in our world. They're tired of having to face hardships from day after day as they struggle with addictions, as they struggle with relationships, as they find it hard to make ends meet. And today Jesus Christ is saying, if you want change in your life, if you want change, I'm ready to give it to you. You're struggling to overcome some habits. You're trying to make right in your relationships. You've just been diagnosed with some sickness. You've been struggling with some sickness for some time. You're having a hard time financially, and you need change. The Lion of Judah is here right now, and he wants to give you that change. So as we meditate on the words of the song that instrumentalists are singing, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If you're seeking change in your life, I invite you right now to join me at the altar because the line of the tribe of Judah is here and he wants to liberate somebody today. He wants to bring change in your life. Who's looking for change today? away but there's something about that name you're looking for change today this is your time for change just call his name Jesus 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 there's something 
about that name. Somebody is holding on to their issue right now. Don't hold on to it. Let it go right now. Jesus is promising you change. Don't leave the same way you came. Change is yours today. Where are you? Where are you? He's promising healing today. He's promising restoration. He's promising to give you the strength to go through that thing that you're going through. Where are you today? Experience change. Experience change. Experience change. Then there's someone today, there's someone today who has not yet given their life to Jesus Christ. And you realize that the only way you can face tomorrow is if you give your life fully to him. You're here today and you know you need to take a public stand for Jesus. The Spirit of God is speaking to your heart right now. He can change you, my friends. Someone's saying, but I'm still struggling with that thing. Let me tell you something. By yourself, that thing will conquer you all the time. But with your hand in his hand, victory is yours. Show yourself today. Where are you? Where are you? Those who know how to pray should be praying right now. Those who know how to pray should be praying. Because somebody, somebody needs to make that decision. Somebody needs to make that decision. Where are you? Jesus. Jesus. Let all heaven and earth proclaim 